This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth there, and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living. Today, my co-host and I are going to talk about psychological coercion in law. How are you, JJ? How was your Easter? It was good. I'm doing fine. Excited to kind of actually get into the nitty gritty of the law. I know that at least personally, I felt initially kind of when I came into this field, I thought, "Mm, you know, law is not super interesting. I thought that would be the dry, not so great part of human trafficking. I didn't think there'd be a lot of interest there. Uh, turns out I was really wrong. <laughs> it's actually incredibly interesting and a really good reflection, I think, of both sort of international and American feeling about human trafficking and human trafficking victims, and also just sort of the time that we live in. I think it's a super interesting field. Well, an advocacy can feel really meaningful, and it does matter. But changing the law is really, really important to making things happen. And it's easy to forget that. Because posting on Facebook, you can feel like you're changing the world when really you get five likes and realize you're, you're not, maybe. What do they call it? Is that like clicktivism? Slacktivism. Is it what? Slacktivism. Ah. I don't know. I like clicktivism better. It implies <laughs> that it, you're not sitting down... But you're liking things. It may be a term. Maybe. But that as too, it's one of those things as well. I mean, you bring up the importance of changing the laws. But again, as a person whose only experience with the law was the Judge Judy TV show and Law and Order, I had a very skewed and very wrong view of what policy change actually looked like. I didn't realize how long it takes. I didn't realize how much sort of fighting and debate went into the simple language in a bill. Uh, Later on in this podcast, uh, I know that I for sure am going to be talking about a recent Colorado law that just passed. And this took months and hundreds of hours and meetings and money and just the time. And it's very weird because it's a very sort of long stressful, yet somehow still simultaneously boring wait. You spend a lot of time sitting at at places that look kind of like the DMV, Mm -hmm. trying to get these laws and these policies to change. And that's just at a local state level. I can't imagine what at a federal level, what the process is like. And if we have listeners that are lawyers or all involved in law enforcement, the legal field, they probably are laughing at us right now because they're like, we knew, we knew from day one. But, you know, and I was used to sort of the drudge of academic stuff, not the the slow march of legal processes. Right. We we can also confuse law with lawyers. Not like they have nothing to do with each other. They have the word law in them. And like business lawyers who are always making business harder to do and are putting in all this language that nobody understands and... You know, we we love you lawyers. You, you know that. Yeah, we do. Or at least and some, of, some of you. we without you. It's but true. It, it, yeah. no, you, There's also 
just sort of the weirdness. Sorry, so I didn't mean to cut you off there. <laughs> There's somewhat, man, I'm becoming a politician. Just cutting people off, not listening. Or a pundit. Because there is a difference between the two. <laughs> but just getting used to sort of that, mm, just the language required to kind of operate in that sphere and the set of norms that are there. It's a completely different thing. And so now I think when I look at advocacy laws or people who are, are purely sort of legal advocates, I think I have a lot more respect now for the process that they go through. Well, and what our field does, law enforcement and prosecution and such are a huge part of it. And so what the law does, it, it very quickly turns from abstract legal language to something that has to be concrete because police and prosecutors have to take something specific out of it in order to apply it, in order to arrest and convict. And there is relevance when we're talking about psychological coercion, which is somewhat invisible. Things that are psychological or things that are motive can be harder to prove. Yeah, I think probably one of the best examples of that, too, as we move through this, is trying to prove things that are hard to be quantified or things that are mostly sort of anecdotal or very are very complex and situational. That's really hard to do when you need to move them into a policy framework that needs to benefit a wide variety of people in a wide variety of circumstances. It's hard to take sort of something that you would want to be incredibly narrow and, and personal and make it this big, flat, general law. So to talk about trafficking law, we're going to go back to the first really important anti-slavery law, the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And if you've watched a movie like Lincoln, you can see how convoluted passing that law was. Because of how convoluted passing it was, there are people who think it's not even legitimate. Ugh. Yeah, there becomes a moment. I don't, I don't want this to sound like a defeatist podcast this week because I don't feel that way at all, actually. I come, I'm coming back from Easter feeling very renewed, not only in sort of my faith and my position in the world, but that we can make the world better. Maybe we're all going to die in a terrible nuclear holocaust because of North Korea, but we'll get to that in another podcast, maybe. But that there's there's good in the world. People want what's best for one another. I, I just I feel very hopeful. And I'm afraid that that's not going to come across when I talk about what I say next. Is as we go through sort of the different incarnations of human trafficking law, I think that what we're going to see is just that, Seth, is that it all this confusion and sort of this difficulty with handling what is it to be a slave? What is it to be a slave in the U.S.? What does that term even mean? All stems from the history of the 13th Amendment. It all, I don't want to say it's no fruit from the poison tree, using a biblical and using law and order terms. But I think it's just one of those things where if... You almost want like the counterfactual. You want to go back in time and say, if there had been more consensus on this, would things be as bad as they are now? Right. You might want to define 
counterfactual for most of humanity who doesn't know the definition. <laughs> okay, counterfactuals are actually a really cool, fun party game to play, or if you're stuck on a long drive. Because what counterfactuals are is if you take everything exactly the same as it was, except for one slight historic difference. For example, if nothing else in the world changed except for the bullet that was shot at JFK misses him. And instead takes off Jackie O's hat. What happens to the rest of history because of this one action? Pretty much the most famous one uh, that I can think of that actually fits within this time period uh, is what if Lincoln didn't get shot? Not that an assassination attempt wasn't attempted on him, but like, what if that day the gun jammed? And Lincoln didn't get shot. What would the world look like now? And the answer might be not different at all, because the next day he stepped out in front of a horse carriage and he got run over and it was very sad. Or it might be that we had robots now. Who knows? So that's that's what a counterfactual is. If everything stays the same except for one fact, which we modify. And we'd like to dedicate the word counterfactual to our colleague and professor Oliver Kaplan. Yes. Who really, really loves that word. Well, because counterfactuals are actually super interesting. If you think when you, to, to set up a phrase, because when, even when we're dealing with something like slavery, right, where everything is so contextual and so historical and everything like this domino tends to follow itself. When you introduce a counterfactual, you kind of have to review the entire situation and you have to relook at everything you you hold to be true, right? So if we've held for a long time in the U.S. this particular version of slavery is bad, and here's why it's bad, and here's what it's done to the United States and to the world as a whole, but we've held these things as sort of truth that, like, ah, it kind of had to happen, when you introduce well, but what if more people had consented to the 13th Amendment? What if it had had more popular support? What if it had been introduced by a politician other than Abraham Lincoln at the particular time that it was introduced? Suddenly it modifies that truth. And you have to kind of look at things more closely. So, Ollie, this is for you. Ollie, who is a visiting expert at the United States Institute for Peace in Washington, D.C., yeah, he's, he does good work. We'll put his little, we'll put his like bio in the comment section. Y'all should go check him out. He's a book that's going to come out, I think, within the next month, actually. Yes. So. And I also like to give a shout out to Dominic Corelli, who was a classmate at Messiah College, who also, well, who's been working at the Institute for Peace for a long, long time. One day, Seth, we'll be important, too. <laughs> I hope. Maybe. But don't worry, guys. We'll still be here. Podcasting. Have you seen 13th, the documentary? I have not, actually. I have not either. I thought about it, but then I realized I can't think about trafficking and slavery all the time. I did, however, watch Beasts of No Nation, finally. The child soldier one that's on Netflix. I have a pretty firm, and I think you and I have talked about the possibility of doing sort of a, a podcast just on trafficking media. But I have I have sort of a weird thing where watching it, watching human trafficking media just ends up being very frustrating for me for a number of reasons. So I tend not to do it. 
But I think that that reflects sort of a bad tendency uh, on behalf of people in the field to just not engage with what the vast majority of people know about human trafficking. I think that it just encourages us to kind of sit in our ivory tower and not be involved too much. And also to recognize that even movies like Taken, that there's something one can glean from that, even if there are inaccuracies. We're not going to be focusing on the documentary 13th, which neither of us have seen yet, but we are going to start with the amendment. And I'm going to read the two sections of that amendment. Section 1, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We previously have talked a little bit about the, the exception there, but that uh, won't be the focus today. And then section two, which is very, very important and not always talked about. Section two is Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So because this was an amendment, it gave Congress power to pass other legislation in the spirit of the amendment. And so this leads to the TVPA and other legislation. But we're not there yet. So in 1867, for instance, Congress passed the Anti-Peonage Act, which criminalized peonage, which is the status or condition of compulsory service based upon the indebtedness of the peon to the master. Mm -hmm. There was plenty of peonage that happened after that, that law was passed, unfortunately, but it was criminalized, so there's that. But that also shows that you need to enforce the laws and you need to enforce them nationally. And that oftentimes, which we've talked about a lot here, it's not just the, the formation of the law, it's the funding of the law that follows. So a lot of times, even if there are law enforcement officials who are aware of the law being passed and they're aware of sort of the new rollout, they don't have any additional funding to keep sort of the status quo from happening as it was. And that that is very frustrating for everyone involved in our field. But again, slavery was legal ownership where the owner could exercise power over their property. And in this case, property was a person, which is different than some other forms of slavery, legally speaking. So the next one I'm going to talk about is in 1948. I believe, J.J., you have some before that. Yeah, in particular, I have, I have two that I think are the most important. There were others, but these are sort of the, the <coughs> stage. So this, the first one is called the Mann Act, M-A-N-N. So the Mann Act of 1910, which was then amended both in 1978 and 1986, criminalized the transportation of minors and the coercion of adults to travel across state lines or to foreign countries. So in 1910, we're already sort of worried about international human trafficking for the purposes of engaging in commercial sex. So this is actually pretty much very similar to laws that we have currently when it comes to minors involved in the commercial sex industry, where it is a blanket. If you are under the age of 18, which is the age of consent, then you are being trafficked. 
However, the difference was here is that if you were an adult and you're participating in commercial sex, the idea of sort of consent for commercial for adults to participate in commercial sex was a little bit fuzzier, but you do start to see now this language of coercion. So if adults are tricked into the commercial sex industry and they're transported as part of this industry, that the person who tricked them, who coerced them, and who then transported them can be charged. And I think that that is, it's very progressive, actually, when you think of sort of politics that were happening in the U.S., this idea of sort of discussing the commercial sex industry at all in 1910 publicly is actually quite shocking. Following this up in 1930 is that we have the Tariff Act of 1930. And Seth and I have a podcast that sort of deals a little bit more with this when we talk about the idea of how the U.S. government regulates the importation of goods made with forced or indentured labor. So what the Tariff Act of 1930 tried to do was it tried to uh, outlaw any importation of goods into the United States that had been made with forced, so slave, or indentured labor. The problem is, as Seth and I have laid out in other podcasts, proving and sort of keeping these supply chains clear, especially in an age pre-internet and pre-easy flight and travel, a little difficult. And then after the Tariff Act of 1930, we actually see sort of a, a break in trafficking law I suspect because international attention switched elsewhere. We have World War II. I think it's just more of a contention of how then do we deal with the migration of people rather than a trafficking concern. Right. Uh, other things, you know, in this period that have at least some relevance, uh, 1924, immigration, major immigration law changes, and then we have convict leasing going on, I believe still in the 30s, if not later. There's peonage going on, uh, peonage primarily in the South. And then in World War II, where the federal government, wanting some more legitimacy, decides, okay, we're going to actually enforce our anti-peonage laws and make the South work on getting their act together in that regard. It's not saying the North was blameless, but peonage was mostly a Southern thing. But certainly, as you see with things like the Homestead riots and things of that nature, that this idea of indentured servitude still did exist, the exploitative labor. Just to toss it out there that we're not a South-bashing podcast, Seth. We are equal opportunity haters. No, and certainly racism it's a nationwide thing, still. <laughs> Which is why is yeah. it when we try to be nice and fair, we just make things worse? I don't know, but you mentioned involuntary servitude in 1948. Congress passed 1584, Section 1584, the USC Code statute, which authorized criminal punishment of whoever knowingly and willfully holds to involuntary servitude or sells into any condition of involuntary servitude any other person for any term. So that consolidated some older laws. And the big issue here was it still offered little guidance on what to do with it, which then how to apply it specifically which yielded inconsistent court rulings. So one of those inconsistent court rulings was in 1988, which seems relatively recent. I was alive then. 
with the year I was born. So you were alive. So I'm fully formed. In 1988, the U.S. Supreme Court resolved a circuit court split in Kosminski. It was a 5-4 opinion authored by Justice O'Connor. It was about the legal significance of psychological coercion in determining a violation of involuntary servitude. So this ties into previous law. In this case, case, it involved two mentally challenged farm workers who had low IQs. They were more or less homeless, and uh, the defendant, one of the defendants, Ike Kosminski, recruited them to work on his dairy farm in Michigan. And in exchange for room and board, which they accepted, they were laborers on the farm. But the, they were abused, they include, which included substandard housing in a trailer with no running water, spoiled food, and they were physically and verbally abused by the family. They were also isolated, and they were discouraged from speaking with visitors. Government prosecution said that there was a pattern of isolation, verbal and physical abuse, harsh living and working conditions, and that this was an extreme form of psychological coercion that was sufficient to constitute involuntary servitude. However, the Supreme Court ruled against that, and they said that involuntary servitude was only the direct or threatened use of physical force, or the use or threatened use of state-imposed legal sanction to work off a debt to a master, such as a contract that was imposed on them. So either physical force, as in, we're going to punish you, we're going to beat you, we're going to kill you, etc., or something like, there is a contract, if you don't pay it, you're going to have legal sanction or legal penalty if you don't, which is different than the situation here. So to be clear, the Kosminskis were freed of this accusation. They, they did not put these people in involuntary servitude based on the law at the time. So that brings us to 2000, when Congress passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. We've mentioned it. We will mention it again and again, as it is one of the more relevant pieces of law to our field. I'm going to end up at one point, maybe the old lady in the nursing home that has TVPA tattooed on my knuckles. Hmm. I think that's the position I'm going to be in. What would you have on your other knuckles, though? I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping, like, maybe there'll be, like, a new, a new, like, reformation of the trafficking law that isn't just force, fraud, and coercion, but is, like, force, fraud, coercion, and, like, trauma, like, psychological trauma, something. I don't know. I'll have to think of a cool acronym for it. It'll be my love-hate thing. Right, and... Palermo doesn't really fit. Palermo is the UN version of it. I'll get a little, maybe like I'll get a heart with Palermo in it. It's one of the mom hearts. So in 2000, Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and this one criminalized specifically the use of psychological means to induce labor. In other words, this law said you could be, you could break the law by psychologically coercing somebody only. It was passed pursuant to the 13th Amendment, Section 2, 
as I mentioned earlier, and it was meant to provide prosecutors and courts with tools to identify and convict modern-day slaveholders, in theory. And law has this challenge that it's hard to get laws passed. There's multiple stakeholders. There's multiple people with different takes on what a law should be, so it's really hard. But then you have how specific should the law be? If it's too specific, it may grow outdated really quick, mm -hmm. or it may be too specific to actually apply to what situations arise. TVPA was very open-ended, but then if it's open-ended on prohibiting non-physical and non-violent coercion, is there enough detail to ascertain what you're prosecuting? Is there enough detail to get the weight of evidence for a criminal case? And as I think we talked about pretty extensively in a previous podcast, people have a lot of reasons for not wanting to cooperate with law enforcement against their traffickers, even if they're able to, in terms of having knowledge of the enterprise that was that trafficked them or the people that trafficked them directly. Even if you're able to, and a lot of times people are, are very afraid to do so. There's a few important parts I want to draw out of the TVPA briefly. One of them, Section 102.13, specifically reverses the Supreme Court's decision in Kosminski. So it specifically reverses and expands involuntary servitude so that now, if that case were tried, it would be trafficking. Mm -hmm. So that's one difference. Section 103.8 is the core of the TVPA. It specifies the means and such, and we could probably do an episode just on the specific words here. So 103.8, I'm going to read it in, in detail here. Severe forms of trafficking in persons. The term severe forms of trafficking in persons means A, sex trafficking, in which a commercial act is induced by force, fraud, or, or coercion, or in which the person induced to perform such act has not attained 18 years of age, or B, the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of subjection to involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. Force, fraud, or coercion are perhaps the most notable, easiest to understand aspects here, especially, and in our case, coercion. It's important to remember about the TVPA that they've had a number of reauthorization acts. They had them in 2003, 2005, 2008, 2013. And from what I understand, there's one on deck currently. So maybe we should do a podcast maybe on just that, the brand new one when it's fresh. But So every time this reauthorization act, and it just is listed then as the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, and then the year, always just sort of amends that initial, the initial 2000 report. And it's done sort of, you can see with an intention of handling what is considered to be sort of the problem of modern trafficking. So we see a sort of redefinition, making it a little bit more gender neutral because the original TVPA was very gendered, very aimed towards women, a little bit more focused on sex trafficking than labor. And in particular, the 2013 Act focused a lot on the idea of 
what happens, how, how do states respond in times of natural disaster. So if you think back to 2013, some of the things that were happening, you can see that worldwide that the TVPA laws tend to fall in line with sort of the cause du jour at the moment. So as we start to see larger sort of refugee flows, I'm curious if this new if this new reauthorization will maybe deal a little bit more with refugees, whereas the previous ones had dealt primarily with migrants. I, I would be very shocked if it doesn't. All right. Moving on. Section 102.7 says that traffickers often threaten, quote, others should the victim escape or attempt to escape, and that this can have the same coercive effects on victims as direct threats to inflict such harm. So to have the law specifically mentioned that a threat can be real, as harmful as physical harm mm -hmm. is pretty amazing. And that, I think, is reflected, too, in the National Defense Authorization Act. That was something that was passed in 2013. Mm -hmm. And that one wasn't related directly to government contractors. So this idea of if you are a government contractor and you or your company are having any sort of relationship with human traffickers or victims of human trafficking, you are now culpable. And so I think that that's actually probably, this is actually the piece of legislation that makes me happiest, oddly enough, because mm -hmm. I think this is one of the few sort of federal laws that the U.S. has passed that has a direct effect on how people manage their supply chains and how it's, it's one of the few policies I think that has teeth because it directly goes at the financial capability of corporations. And oftentimes these military type contractors or government contractors are ones who are working overseas, obviously, and they're and they're they don't want to sort of be associated with human trafficking. So that's that's probably the piece of legislation that makes me happiest because I feel like that's the one, maybe the first one, that made people who had kind of, you know, just looked the other way, particularly in regards to labor trafficking, kind of sit up and take notice. I realize I slightly misspoke in the last one. Uh, section 102.7 is saying that threatening to harm others can be as coercive as threatening the person themselves. So, coercion. There is a specific definition of coercion within the TVPA. So in section 103.2, the term coercion means A, threats of serious harm to or physical restraint against any person. Mm -hmm. So threats. B, any scheme, plan, or pattern intended to cause a person to believe that failure to perform an act would result in serious harm to or physical restraint against any person. Or C, the abuse or threatened abuse of the legal process. And then it also restates involuntary servitude. That involuntary servitude includes a condition of servitude induced by means of any scheme, plan, or pattern intended to cause a person to believe that if the person did not enter into or continue in such condition, that person or another person would suffer serious harm or physical restraint or be the abuse or threatened abuse of the legal process. So the TVPA specifically calls out psychological coercion, and I've read the specific examples of how that can be applied. One of 
one of the things here, Seth, that like let's I'm gonna play devil's advocate. Okay. Play devil's advocate for a minute. I would like to make this clear. Not my real feelings. Don't write me angry letters. I get enough angry tweets as it is. Um why is it important that we actually have a definition of coercion? Isn't it just good enough to have it listed that there's some sort of psychological damage to you? Why do we need an actual definition? I'll leave this pause in the podcast because this is a hard question. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's an unfair question a, mm-hmm. a little bit. I kind of blindsided with you, so I do apologize. I... For me personally, it's that I feel like it needs to be defined because I think for most people where you go to just because of like the contextual thing of language is that when I hear coercion, I think like guy with gun to my head, not sort of the more insidious, quieter, maybe sort of softer forms of coercion. So it's important to define that out. But I wonder why, why, why coercion as the term? Why not something else? I don't have enough of a legal background to know, but in terms of words, and I'm going to go back to the words in section 108 or 103.8b, recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining. It's really important in law to realize and remember that words in law have meaning, that they often have meaning based on previous law or precedent. And so what I might think transportation means may not be what a given law means. And so that's one reason why having a specific definition is important so that we're clear on what the word means legally. And all the more for law enforcement who has to try to figure out how do we apply this law. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that. So we have somebody who is being trafficked. And if they were only threatened, you could have a situation where the trafficker says, I didn't do it. And the trafficee says, I was threatened. How do you prove that? That can be difficult. Now, There may be, and often are, other factors that can be weighed in. But proving a threat without other evidence can be difficult. So Kathleen Kim is one person we have referenced who has done really great work on legal analysis of trafficking law. She is a professor of law at Loyola in Los Angeles. And she's noted that coercion is really complicated. When does it occur? What type of conduct is coercive? When does it constitute a legally sufficient claim of coercion that this well-meaning open-ended law has been problematic in application? And so when people want to prosecute... Because, again, the weight of criminal law in prosecution is pretty high for evidence that other laws might be easier to prosecute, and sometimes they go that route rather than the TVPA. 
And so actual use of application sometimes is more old slavery oriented in terms of they were restrained, they were beat, rather than they were psychologically coerced. So it's a good law, good intent, but this whole process still needs some work. That's a nice way, actually, to sum up the whole human trafficking. Ah, I was help- this was going to be a hopeful podcast, Seth. <laughs> Why do we always turn maudlin? Hey, we've had humor in this podcast. That's it true. It takes work to have humor. Right? This is effort. I don't know if y'all who are listening realize this. You want to know how hard it is to make the man act funny? Let me tell you. It's a lot. Difficult, difficult thing. So there are examples, but Kosminski is one good example, and there's others. There are these situations where somebody might go to a situation, and the situation isn't quite what they expect, but because they're threatened, they don't leave. And that is a situation that can be prosecuted under the TVPA. But that is federal law. There is also state law. So what is Colorado's law? Or I should say, what has Colorado's law been, JJ? I am glad you asked, Seth. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, uh, one of the things that I do, in addition to being a PhD candidate at the University of Denver, is I work for an organization called SWAN, the Social Wellness Advocacy Network. And we are both a sex worker advocate group, as well as a sex trafficking survivors group. So sort of what we do is if you're looking to leave sex work, whether you entered it by force or by choice, we make sure that you are provided for so that all of your psychosocial needs are met. So we get you your therapy. We make sure you know how to get transportation to and from your court dates, how to pay all your fines. Great stuff like that. But in addition to sort of the actual service providing work that we do for clients, SWAN also fights uh, for Colorado legislation that we think would best suit our population that we serve, the vast majority of which are human trafficking victims and survivors. So what the law was, and in particular the law that I'm speaking of, is HB 17-1072, Human Trafficking and Sexual Servitude, the law concerning human trafficking for sexual servitude. And what this was is that this was a bill put forward by representatives Landgraf, Lawrence, and Lawrence, and then Senator John Cook. And what this bill was seeking to do was trying to expand upon current Colorado law, which is pretty commensurate with federal law um, and other state laws on trafficking. So trafficking is a federal offense. But what this bill was doing was it amended the language defining the crime of human trafficking for sexual servitude to include any person who knowingly, knowingly is the key word there, advertises, offers to sell, sells travel services, or facilitates activities defined as human trafficking of a minor of sexual servitude. So what that means is that if you are a person and you run sort of a sex tourism business that's based on the idea of sort of child sex and children can consent, you can then be arrested. And that kind of touches on the PROTECT Act. The PROTECT Act was passed in 2003. Its full name is the Prosecutorial Remedies and Other Tools to End the Exploitation of Children. (laughs) PROTECT is a lot easier to say. 
And what that did was it set up that if you engaged in sex tourism, you could be charged. But where what this bill did that I think is interesting in Colorado, um, and why Swam was so interested in it, is that it expands it. So if I run a hotel that is sort of working as a de facto brothel, and I know that the people working there are not of age, I know that the people there are trafficked, and I don't say anything or I allow it and I make money and I profit off of this, then I am a trafficker, even if I didn't actively go and bring these people in to be sold. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> Hypothetically. And we see this a lot when you actually kind of get into the anecdotal stories of people who are involved in trafficking. You know, there's a driver. There's a car service that they frequently interact with. There, there are people there who will serve as kind of bodyguards to both keep the trafficking victims in line and also to sort of police the clients to protect the merchandise, which in this case is people. And so there, and there is a lot of people involved, particularly this one only deals with the commercial sex industry, but within the sex industry, there's a lot of people involved, bar owners, hairstylists, makeup people, the people who posted the ads on Backpage or Craigslist or what have you. And so in, if it involved a minor, so it's automatically sex trafficking. You cannot consent to sex if you are a minor. Then what this did was that it put people... Um, so how, how here's the easiest way to phrase it. So one, what this bill was doing was it was now putting these people who participate in trafficking but may not be a trafficker directly themselves, putting them on the same level as a trafficker, which I am actually all for. I think just because you can, you can say that you closed your eyes and didn't really think about the slavery doesn't mean that it's okay to read profit from it. The second thing that this bill did was if you were a trafficker of adults, even if you were a trafficker of adults in one of these situations of forced slavery, then you would be placed on the sex offender registry, which again, I'm okay with because if you're forcing someone into the sex trade, even if you yourself are not having sex with them, you're not committing that rape, you're putting someone up to be sexually exploited. So you're placed then on the sexual offender registry, which we can talk in a future podcast about is in the U.S. actually a pretty serious thing. I think a lot of people think it's just a list and you register, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a very involved sort of process. And then what it initially had, which was part three, was that if you were a victim of human trafficking, but had participated in the trafficking of others, so on the psychological coercion end of things, if you were trafficked, and your name is JJ, and you're trafficked, and you want to appease your traffickers because you've undergone such deep psychological trauma and you want to survive, that you go out and find another person to also be trafficked, and you bring Seth back, and Seth is a new victim, you can then be charged as a trafficker. You participated in trafficking of a person, even if you're a victim yourself. At the time when this bill first started, it wasn't dealing with that at all. It wasn't dealing with the psychological coercion. It wasn't dealing with what happens when victims are not treated as victims by the system, but perpetrators, when they never would have been perpetrators had they not been victims. And so what Swan, with the help of some really, I mean, I have to give it up to the representatives and the senator. They worked very closely with us. They were very, very kind. They took lots of meetings. Um, but what Swan and a few other victim rights advocacy organizations and a few actual survivors petitioned for 
was that Colorado HB 117-1072 remove the portion of the bill where victims would then be added to the sex offender registry. And they had said you could petition to get off of it, but petitioning to get off the registry is really hard and very expensive and very time-consuming. So rather than even be placed on the registry, if you are a victim of human trafficking and you can, or can prove you're a victim of human trafficking, you can now claim something which is called the affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is one of the things that actually makes me happiest about sort of where law is going in the U.S. and that Colorado is one of the that it passed here in Denver when there's only a few states that have affirmative defense that has been voted on and had 100% agreement on makes me really happy to be in Colorado, actually. I'm a Pittsburgh girl. I'll probably be a Pennsylvanian (laughs) for the rest of my life and my heart, but I'm starting to feel a lot of love for Colorado. Because what affirmative offense is, in general, is that if you have a, a criminal charge brought against you, and with that if you can mitigate the legal com- consequences of the defendant's otherwise unlawful conduct. So again, to use the JJ and Seth example, if Seth comes in and puts a gun to my head and says, go rob this bank, I cannot be charged as a bank robber because I wouldn't have done the robbery had Seth not put a gun to my head. Would have been great for my student loans, but I wouldn't have done it because Seth wasn't there. And affirmative defense is actually a complicated thing to prove because it's not enough to say, I was trafficked six years ago. I left trafficking. And then I decided to traffic others because of the experience I had. You can't do that. It needs You need to show sort of a clear path of how you arrived where you are. So in particular, what the affirmative defense added in this case means if I was a victim of sex trafficking and I can prove I was a victim of sex trafficking and I can prove that the crimes I committed, in this case, anything from prostitution to bringing in other people who might be themselves minors to additionally be sex trafficked, I can't be charged for that because I'm a victim too. What I think is so important, if you don't acknowledge that victimhood looks very different person to person in that victims have rights and victims need to be protected, then I don't know what you're doing in terms of actually helping people. And so the new amendment says, uh, it's 2.5. It is an affirmative defense to a charge pursuant to subsection two of the section. If the person being charged can prove that at the time of the offense, he or she was a victim of human trafficking for sexual servitude who is forced or coerced, that word again, into engaging in the human trafficking of minors for sexual servitude pursuant to subsection two of this section. And I think that having that added in is fantastic. I think it's exactly what had to happen. I think that this better recognizes the fact that victims are not criminals. Seems complicated. Where would you think the line would be? Where is a person complicit? At what point are they a trafficker? Like if they're if the person over them or the group over them just flat up left and never came back and they decided they were going to keep doing it, would they then be a trafficker? I think what I actually like about this is it is situational and Mm -hmm. it's up to law enforcement and it's up to sort of the local judiciary to decide if someone was a victim or not. I mean, obviously, I think we can picture ways that this could go wrong. 
but I, I see ways in which it could go right. So, for example, and we actually talked about this quite a bit when we were talking and debating how this bill would look. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we established was for affirmative defense, you do sort of need a chain of action. You know, so one of the things that I can't argue is I can't say, say that I was forced to traffic drugs for a period of, say, let's let's do a year. And then I was arrested by law enforcement. I was able to prove that I was directly forced by someone to traffic these drugs. It wasn't my choice. So I'm not charged with any crime. I do have to help police uh, and the local district attorney or whatever with their own criminal case against the person who trafficked me. But I don't face criminal charges as a drug trafficker. If then I think to myself, I'm in a very economically vulnerable situation. These guys made a lot of money. I'm going to go into do this business for myself, which is the decision I may not have made had I not been trafficked and been kind of exposed to that world and maybe been put under a lot of duress. But I decide with full agency and choice to traffic these drugs and then I'm arrested again. I can't use affirmative defense again. I can't say, well, the only reason why I'm doing this is because I was trafficked because I wasn't ordered or coerced in this second instance. And so affirmative defense is pretty situational in terms of where that line is drawn. Mm-hmm. For example, I anecdotally spoke to one particular victim who had been trafficked when she was quite young and had lived pretty much her, her entire life in this trafficking situation And so then when other children who were trafficked were brought into the situation, she considered this normative. But upon rescue, had affirmative defense been a thing then, she could have used affirmative defense because she wasn't making any sort of free choices there. Mm -hmm. If, however, now 30 years later, she decided to traffic children because, again, financially it worked out or because of past trauma or she decides that's actually normal behavior, that wouldn't be acceptable. So I think it is very situational, but I think one of the reasons why I like this so much is that law enforcement officers are the ones who are out there every day mm-hmm. and see people and sort of see the situations that people are in and are pretty good at knowing if people are lying or not. And then local district attorneys and things like that. I think if we have to put hope in our judicial system, I think this is useful because I think this allows the justice system as it is to sort of make determinations on a case by case basis okay, this is actually a victim, not a criminal. And then hopefully be able to then get these people the services that they deserve. And so where the line is, I don't know. I don't know if that's something we can write legally. You know what? Mm -hmm. Is it you had to be hit three times for it to be domestic violence or once? Like what? Yeah, but it's not just a matter of legally. Like when we're talking to our audience, and thank thank you for being there, to try to help you all understand as we try to wrap our minds around it as well to say where where is the line you know does this does give a free pass to allow somebody to actually be a criminal while they're pretending they're a victim because there are people who ask questions about where like if you do something wrong and if you're coerced into doing something wrong you're still doing something wrong but as you said if somebody puts a gun to your head and forces you to do something. I, I think it's just it's kind of one of those things, like the idea, too, of like a defense attorney, right? Like, mm-hmm. we don't... People who say they're innocent might not be, but you've got to give them all the chances in the world to not go to jail. Mm-hmm. 
that's the foundation of, of sort of our our law and order society, you know? So I think in, in ben, to give victims the benefit of the doubt, you have to give credence to their claims. Mm-hmm. And then if those claims are falsified, then you should, if, if, if it's proven that they're falsified, you should totally go to jail. And you should totally be punished because you're just a trafficker and you're actually trying to take services away from real victims to keep benefiting. But mm-hmm. if a few traffickers have to go free so that a bunch of people who have been victimized by society that made them vulnerable, by people who then sold them, by people who then used them, and again are now being victimized by the judicial system, if we have to let a few traffickers go free so that nobody who is a victim goes to jail and is placed in a sex offender registry when they're a victim, I have to kind of be okay with it. And I have to hope, because of my own sort of theology, that things work out in other arenas. And and it's upsetting. And it, it would infuriate me to find out that somebody used an affirmative defense and passed when it was invalid, I would be livid. And I totally think we should egg their car. But when, metaphorically, again, don't tweet me. But I don't, yeah, I think it's just kind of the way things have to be. I think you have to try to provide victims with the most protection possible. And if that means a few bad people game the system, then so be it. So as we're going through this, I thought about Patty Hearst. Are you familiar with the case? I am. So really briefly, uh, Patty Hearst was daughter of uh, Randolph Hearst of Hearst Corporation, big media conglomerate. And she joined up with the Sibionese Liberation Army in 1974, or debatedly was coerced, or there's a lot here that uh, is still debated. But either way, whether she was coerced and the degree to which she was in love with her boyfriend, the guy who was in the SLA, the reason I mention it is it's just, this is one of the cases that popularized the idea of brainwashing. Like, how could Patty Hearst do this? She must have been forced to do bank robberies. And that was the defense, that she was brainwashed. And it ended up, for multiple reasons, not being enough, and so she went to jail. But because she's famous, Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence and pardoned her a couple years later. Which, if you're famous, that, that can happen, that you can get pardoned or get a really good lawyer... But if you're trying to wrap your mind around what is coercion and what is the debate, like this is a good example of the debate of like, like is this is this trafficking? There there is such a thing as kids who are forced to sell things as part of and they are essentially trafficked. Mm-hmm. Or people who are forced forced drug sales. Now, the law that J.J. is talking about is not about this, right? Yeah, exactly. But but in terms of psychological coercion and being coerced into committing crimes, 
in the grand discussion, you know, Patty Hearst is an example of the discussion. Did I explain that well enough? No, I think you did. And I think it's one of those things where there are people who think that Patty Hearst did have Stockholm Syndrome. And there are people who think that Patty Hearst didn't have Stockholm Syndrome. But you can't send people to jail on a feeling. You gotta have more than that. Especially if you're gonna, if you're trying to do the right thing for the most majority of people and you're trying to sort of return dignity to people who've had it stripped away from them, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. You really do. Well, there's one point, because I listen to a podcast. I listen to them too. <laughs> I believe this was a Fresh Air one. Love Fresh Air, Jerry Gross. So where, there was a point where Patty Hearst had a chance to drive away when there was no pressure being applied to her, when there was a bank robbery. The bank robbery, I believe, went wrong, and she chose to wait. It could be that she was attached and decided not to go, or theoretically, there could have been other types of coercion, even though there was no direct coercion being applied, in theory. Maybe there were other forms of coercion. And so that's how that can work that somebody does not have to physically be restraining a person. Have I given enough disclaimers on this very complicated case that, so that we don't get a thousand emails? <laughs> I'm, you're lying about Patty Hurst. You're paid off by the Hurst family. You're in the CIA, Seb. But there's sort of a weird... It's just you're dealing with a weird situation because people's minds are cookie-cutter. Mm -hmm. And how people react in traumatic situations is so very different. And I, what I always try to tell people when I'm, when I'm trying to like teach or talk about this is that I'm not myself if I don't get seven hours of sleep. Add me tired and hungry into it, and I turn into Wolverine. I'm just angry and irrational and far more likely to yell at like children and small animals, right? And that's small tiny, tiny, tiny privileged first world problems. You expand into no sleep for days. You expand into huge traumas of seeing violence, having violence threatened. You turn into sort of the coercive technique of we can harm you later. We know where your family is. We are, in some cases, um, it's tied to religion. You know, I, I am, I am, a godlike figure. We see this with cults and things like that a lot using labor. So you have to work for me. All, all of this is really, really complicated stuff and changes the way people think and react. And to dismiss how we, how we treat people based on, well, I probably would have run away. Isn't, isn't fair. And what, I remember, in particular, is, are you familiar with the Lindy Chamberlain case in Australia? I am not. Is that the dingo one? Yes. Uh, so Lindy Chamberlain and her husband were camping in Australia, and her baby daughter was dragged out of the tent, I think this was in like 1982, and, oh, sorry, 1980, and eaten by a dingo. Thus leading to all the dingo ate my baby jokes, which once you find out that it's real, is kind of classless. 
her response, the media said that because she didn't seem like a grieving mother, she wasn't crying, she was kind of very cold and very stilted, that it was a sign that she had killed her daughter. And ultimately she went to jail. And then it was discovered that in fact a dingo did really eat the baby. And she was released and sued a whole bunch of people. Uh, but she was in jail for quite some time. And so what I always think about when people say that, well, I didn't react that way, I did, I did react that way. Lindy Chamberlain was grieving the death of her baby. She just didn't grieve in the way that people thought a mother should grieve. And that somehow made her guilty of a heinous crime. So we shouldn't discount how people in traumatic situations act just because it's not how we think we would have acted. It's, if I think about it honestly in my head as the dingo situation, you can't just discount things because it's not how you would behave. But we hope that our discussion of psychological coercion was a bit helpful in helping you all wrap your mind around something that is a little bit abstract, mm -hmm. but really, really important if we're going to protect victims and put traffickers away, that we understand the means and that it's not always clean cut and that we need laws that help law enforcement and judges put people away and identify victims and make sure that we're not penalizing people who are victims. Well said, Seth. Just restating a lot of what you said. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right. If there's anything else any of you would like to know or clarification, let us know at speakerfortheliving.com. And you can tweet me at J underscore Jan Plum. That is my Twitter handle. Send me a message. Send me hate. Send me love. Do whatever it is you need to do. All right. Have a good week, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.